Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the Doctors Are People Too podcast. This week is a very special topic and one that I knew I wanted to cover when I started this podcast. As sports fans, a lot of us see the athletes we watch on television as superhuman. It's their size, their skills, and oftentimes their larger-than-life personalities. But it's in their times of vulnerability that we tend to realize that truly, they are people just like us. Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast of all time, getting the twisties in her biggest Olympic moment? How about just last week when Michaela Schifrin, one of the best skiers of all time, crashed out of multiple events within seconds during the Beijing Olympics? It's sometimes hard to relate to these legendary athletes, but when we see them at their lows, we can easily empathize and sympathize with their pain. But what happens when it's the game itself that aims to beat down the athletes? What happens when we question just how entertaining we want a game to be when it is physically harming its athletes? For many of us, this has been a question that has lingered at the back of our minds when we watch professional football. Each Sunday, we tune in to see the explosive plays and hard hits, only to be reminded a few times a season just how dangerous it is to have 250-pound athletes running full speed into each other. It's been something I've always struggled with, and it's an issue that began to get closer media attention over the last 10 or 15 years. As we've learned more about concussions and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, the NFL has been thrust to the front pages as lawsuits have been filed, movies have been made, and current and former athletes continue to speak about the lasting physical and mental effects of the hits they had taken in the NFL. And to be fair, the NFL has responded in a way that seems to show they are interested in continuing to make the professional game safer and safer. With this comes a trickle-down effect to the population that I see in my emergency room, the pediatric population. Heads Up Football is a program that was introduced in 2012 to help teach youth football players how to most safely play the game. And when young people can watch the NFL each week and see the game played in a safer fashion, I think this goes a long way to helping reduce youth football injuries. Dr. Joseph Maroon, my guest today, is the team neurosurgeon for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I wanted to hear his insight into how the NFL has made the game safer and to hear about his experience interacting with coaches and players over the last several decades as the team neurosurgeon. And as a member of the NFL's head, neck, and spine committee, Dr. Maroon has truly had a front row seat in helping the NFL make the game safer. I hope you enjoy our chat. So we'll now shift into your role with the NFL and the Pittsburgh Steelers. You were the first neurosurgeon who was appointed by a team, that team being the Pittsburgh Steelers, in the entire NFL. What were the experiences that led you to become the official team neurosurgeon? Well, as I said, this goes back a long time. And, and it relates to my own experiences in playing football for the University of Indiana. The concussions that I experienced, the neck injury that I experienced, you know, why you go into medicine. You know, why, and rhetorically, I'll ask you, you know, why did you go into medicine and emergency medicine in particular? And I think I'm still maybe uh, an anachronism or old, uh, old fashioned. I, I think it still is about helping people and giving back and giving back for the gifts, for the uh, incredible opportunities we have in medicine, you know, there's a saying that it's in giving you shall receive. And, and we give but little when we give of our possessions, it's when we give of ourselves 
that we truly give. In my own career, I've found that it really is, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to, to make a diagnosis and to make the right recommendations in terms of therapy for an individual. And, and then in, in terms of helping people maintain health, that's how I approached medicine back in the 80s when I uh, got involved with sports medicine and then became involved with evaluating various Steelers at the time. Mr. Dan Rooney, who was the owner of the Steelers, just an astute, brilliant, incredibly kind human being who also was the ambassador to Ireland, was very intent on having the best medical care for his team that was possible. And we had several patients uh, having concussions and, uh, and, and cervical injuries, low back pain, discogenic problems. I was asked to consult on these patients, Joe Green, Franco Harris, uh, in, in, in the real golden years of the Steelers and Lynn Swan, and uh, was able to make diagnoses and recommendations and suggestions that made a big change in, in, in the way many things are managed. In the 80s, when I first started, I role as a nurse surgeon, thinking, you know, what am I doing here type thing. And, uh, you know, my first thought about concussions was not the long-term effects of concussions, but any concussion might be associated with an intracranial hematoma, subdural, epidural, intracranial hemorrhage. So as you, you don't recall, because you weren't there then, but, uh, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, after a concussion, the criteria for going back into the game was, well, how many fingers can you see? And if you said three, you didn't go back. But if you said, you know, I'm, the point is, and that's simplifying it, but we were not as attuned to the long-term effects of concussions in sports uh, at that time. And that's when Coach Knoll, four-time Super Bowl winner, uh, I told him that his starting quarterback couldn't play against the Dallas Cowboys the following week, and he said, why not? I said, because he's had a concussion, and the guidelines say he has to stay out a minimum of two weeks. Well, why not three weeks? Why not one week? He looks good to me. I think he should be able to play. And he said, if you want to keep somebody out of football, I want objective data, not specious guidelines drawn up by a committee without good data. And that's when I went to Mark Lovell, a neuropsychologist, and said, Mark, he's right. And uh, we came up with the impact test, which is a 20-minute computer-based uh, test that evaluates uh, uh, brain speed, computation, memory, and ability to process information. We then went back and said, well, if you want objective data, we need to baseline the whole team. There was a little pushback there from some of the agents. You mean you're going to do neuropsychological testing on my player? Well, not quite, but it is a test that uh, will enable them to get back sooner, maybe, uh, or keep them safer. So anyway, it's, it's evolved incredibly far at this point. 
to uh, where I said it's become more or less the standard of care, that you need neurocognitive testing before engaging in contact sports so that if you do have a concussion, you have a baseline to which you compare it and determine if your cognitive ability or emotional ability uh, or memory is significantly impaired that you may not pick up on a regular exam. Those of us who watch football know that every week there's a number of different medical personnel, both on the field, but also available uh, to be consulted should there be injuries. Where does the neurosurgeon role and where do you specifically fall in in terms of the team physician, in terms of the athletic trainers? Obviously, it's a collaborative process, but, but where does your role fall into all of this? Well, the role, as you, you hit the word collaborative, I mean, the athletic trainers uh, are key at an NFL game. You have emergency medical personnel, you have spine boards, you have everything that, uh, that might be needed. But it is a collaborative effort. And neurosurgically, the catastrophic injuries that we want to avoid, and if they do occur, handle appropriately, are intracranial problems, brain injuries, usually concussions, uh, but also cervical spine or thoracic spine injuries that can be associated with neuropraxia, uh, a radiculopathy from discogenic disease, and uh, all of the issues, traumatic issues that occur to the brain and spinal cord. And you mentioned a few minutes ago the impact tool, and you described the origins of it and some of its functionality. One of the questions received from AJ out in Las Vegas was about screening and monitoring athletes when they're suspected to have a brain injury. And so let me give you a scenario. A player gets hurt, is suspected to have a brain injury or a concussion. What is the process that goes on in those blue tents on the sidelines? Is it the impact tool that's being administered? Is it other testing that's being administered at that time? At that time, the, the evaluation is, is one of standard, as you would do in the ER, memory, orientation, location, position, time, uh, a, a, a general questionnaire, and uh, the Maddox concussion protocol, basically. Uh, and it's a quick screen to make sure the athlete is oriented to time, person, and place. It's not neurologically impaired. If there's any question whatsoever, uh, the athlete is then taken into the locker room where very detailed uh, testing is carried out, a computer-based test in terms of uh, all of the things I just mentioned, as well as gait evaluation. The individual is then determined whether or not there was indeed enough evidence for a concussion and they don't go back into the game. In the past, we know that up to 40% of patients or so would re-enter the game having experienced uh, a cerebral concussion. So the definition of what is a concussion becomes critical. As you know, 90% of concussions are not associated with loss of consciousness. It's associated with a transient disturbance of neurological function, a little bit of amnesia perhaps, confusion, maybe disorientation, fatigue, headache, votophobia, nausea, vomiting. These are all symptoms and signs that need to be evaluated and are evaluated uh, expeditiously in the blue tent and in the locker room.
I think that greatly adds some context when we're watching football on Sunday, when a player gets injured, knowing what goes on behind the scenes. You mentioned that anecdote with Coach Knoll, uh, and I imagine as you've gone through your career, there's been further disagreements that happen between the medical side of things and the athletic side of things. Certainly everyone you would imagine has the health and safety in mind of the players, but they're coming at it from different perspectives. So when you have those disagreements, how do you navigate that? You know, I, I can tell you, and I can speak with the Steelers. I've been, I've worked with the three primary coaches of the Steelers, Chuck Knoll, Bill Cower, and, and Mike Tomlin. Over the course of those three plus decades, I've never had one time when I was seriously questioned about my recommendation or judgment, not once. The only time when Chuck Knoll said, if you want me to keep somebody out, give me objective data. And that led to a, a huge change in the way we, we look at concussions in sports. It's, but uh, I, I've never had an argument or disagreement where a, a recommendation was not, was countered uh, by a coach. Sure. That's great to hear. And I think speaks again to the collaborative process of taking care of these athletes. You've worked with the NFL's head, neck and spine committee. And from a general standpoint, all of us certainly have followed the, the different rule changes and different procedures that NFL has implemented to protect player safety, especially when it comes to, to head and neck injuries and spinal injuries. In your mind, what were the most instrumental of those changes to protect our athletes? There, there are so many, actually. Over 40 rules changes have been introduced over the last 10 to 15 years. And, uh, you know, using the head as a weapon, uh, the, the hits to the head uh, now immediately penalize uh, the penalty on Roethlisberger, who is tackled too low, you know, protecting the knees and the ankles, the unnecessary roughness, the kickoff uh, changes in and kickoff returns. And then the equipment is a whole nother area, improvement of the helmet, testing of the helmet. And probably the most important, quite frankly, is not allowing athletes to go back into the game that have been concussed and have not completely recovered. Uh, we know the brain is more vulnerable once it's been injured. Uh, there's an interruption and loss or malfunction of cerebral autoregulation. If you uh, have a concussion, your brain hasn't fully recovered, you go back too soon, a lesser force can cause major, major metabolic and perfusion problems of the brain. This referred to as the second impact syndrome, where there's hyperperfusion and malignant cerebral edema that can actually lead in a disability and death. So I think protecting the athlete from himself from going back and returning to play too soon ranks very high in the in, in the list and that's the whole thing of concussion management from the eye in the sky to the trainer to the referees and one of our listeners bo actually asked about the eye in the sky several years ago the nfl implemented a rule and correct me if i'm wrong where there'd be a, a medical personnel watching the game from up above in a box as opposed to on field level, and they would be able to call out when they were concerned an athlete got injured. How does that process work in terms of communicating that down to the field, and how has that helped specifically to protect against head injuries? 
again, it's another set of eyes, if you would, a, a, uh, a trained, experienced, usually athletic trainer uh, is up in the press box watching different feeds of the game. And there are telltale signs of a concussion in an athlete. They may get up slowly. They may posture. They may stumble when they get up. These are all things that would indicate a transient disturbance of neurological function or a potential concussion. And this could be missed by the refs, by the players on the sideline, by the doctors on the sideline. So the, the individuals in the sky are able to then, we all have earphones, to call down, look at number 82, he, he stumbled a little bit, take a look at him and make sure he's okay. I think one of the what I see is one of the more exciting developments that we're going to be seeing is the automated or the accelerometer mouthpiece. Mouthpieces with embedded accelerometers that will measure, number one, the number of hits, the location of the hit, and also the G-forces. Uh, there's a company, Prevent Biometrics, that has now done thousands of athletes monitoring uh, in the field in which the mouthpiece, unlike accelerometers in a helmet, which move, are very accurate in terms of measuring the G-forces. So what I envision in the near future is an eye in the sky with an iPad, with every player on the field being monitored with an accelerometer in his mouthpiece, reflecting the number of G-forces of hit to each in each contact. So that not just does he get up slowly or does he move uh, with posturing, it's, hey, this guy had 50 G-force hit, we should look at him. This is a study recently been concluded uh, in Ireland with Irish rugby. I, I think we're, we're soon going to have uh, dosimetry badges for the number of hits for subconcussive blows, as well as a measure that we will be able to predict pretty closely relative to the G-forces and relate that to concussive episodes. It's really interesting, certainly something to keep an eye on as the NFL and other sports league continue to integrate technology, both to the improve the game experience, but also the health of athletes. You spoke about some of the, the rule changes that the NFL has implemented as you've been close to the players and the coaches, how have their attitudes changed when it comes to approaching head and neck injuries to players? It's been a huge change, huge in, in my tenure, not too long ago, but initially uh, 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Athletes would deny they had headache, nausea, or they wanted to go back in the game. But the awareness of potential long-term effects uh, has now permeated uh, into the athletes and they understand that they must be uh, careful, assiduous about their own condition if they want to continue to play. So they're much smarter. And, and also other athletes on the team will say, hey, you better look at 22. He's just not acting quite right. The awareness on the part of the NFL and, and, and youth sports in general, it's all sports in general, 
has been a very positive development uh, in preventing and obviating injuries. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And as you mentioned youth sports, what has the trickle-down effect been in terms of the NFL implementing changes and your team doing further studies and then implementing things in youth sport to help protect those injuries from happening at a younger age? Very, very important question. You know, with the impact test, for instance, we, we initially started with professional sports. And once it gets accepted by professional sports, of course, then there's a much faster trickle down, if you want to call it that. It's a whole new other discussion about the effect of, of all of the problems and talks about concussions in youth sports. We're seeing a huge increase in esports, inversely related to and it's going up and youth sports are going down. So what we're, what we're having, as you know, an epidemic of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and kids, they're spending more time on iPads, on computers, on e-sport competition, using their fingers rather than their whole body. So they're not getting the exercise that the body and the brain needs to maintain growth, homeostasis, productivity, and creativity. At least that's my, my bias. Again, maybe anachronistic and old-fashioned, but I recall the quotation from General MacArthur, who was the commandant of, uh, at West Point. And he had a plaque placed facing the playing fields of football, baseball, uh, hockey, etc. And it said, on the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that on other days and on other fields will lead to victory. So I'm, I'm a, a believer in the fields of friend, friendly strife, friendly and safe strife. And, and I think with youth sports, we've made it safer than it's ever been in terms of the equipment, the coaching, the rules, the instructions. Uh, and despite that, there's a major decrease in kids' participation because of the fear that's been promulgated uh, relative to some contact sports. And when we talk about injuries in esports, I guess we'll forget about how my friends and I used to throw the N64 controllers at each other when we were losing in NFL blitz football, but we'll, we'll forget about those. I want to, as we, we start to wind down, I want to talk a few minute, minutes about mental health. And, and this was a topic that was brought up by one of our listeners, Brandon, in New York, about the perceptions of mental health in football and how they have evolved. We saw a couple weeks ago Antonio Brown, a former Pittsburgh Steeler who was on Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, leaving the field in the middle of the game. And the reaction to that in the media and by, by fans on, on social media sites was interesting because there were some that blamed Antonio Brown as being selfish, but then there were others that maybe were a little bit more insightful and questioning whether the, the hard hits he had taken, the concussions that he has experienced were contributing to mental health issues that led to him walking off the field in the middle of the game. My question is, what do we know about the contributions that repeated head injuries or concussions 
can contribute in terms of athletes developing depression and other mental health issues? Is there a connection? Traumatic brain injury is certainly associated with uh, various neurocognitive and emotional disturbances. That certainly can't be denied. Whether there is an epidemic of this in terms of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, I think is an ongoing issue. I think we have to be careful about hyperbole, clickbait, and sensationalism uh, when the data uh, isn't there. You know, you can speculate all you want about a particular athlete having aberrant behavior and why. You can go back to upbringing, the environment in which the individual was uh, raised, the genetic predisposition, and, and all of the factors that go into uh, mental health, as, as you mentioned. So I, I think there's a lot of unsubstantiated speculation about neuropathology uh, that is just that, unsubstantiated. Is there a changing perception in terms of the approach to mental health when it comes to NFL players? I, I think the attention to that is, is huge as it has evolved over the years. There's a much heightened sensitivity to what happens to these individuals who have, from age seven or eight, had their identity almost entirely identified with being a successful athlete, and then having to terminate that injury, age, contracts, or whatever, rather abruptly after 20, 25, 30 years, 35 years, the, the separation anxiety, if you would, and the implications of that in terms of self-esteem, who I am, what I am, uh, and also the financial aspect, all of these are factors that contribute to behavioral and uh, mental issues, anxiety, depression. Uh, and yes, I, I think, uh, I can't speak for the NFL, but from my observations, uh, there's a very significant emphasis on being aware and doing whatever can be done to assist uh, these individuals. Joe, as you look back at your career, we've talked about some of your achievements. There's even more of your achievements that we haven't talked about. What are some of the things that you're most proud of, either things that we've already discussed or maybe things that we haven't touched on? Well, I think the changes that we've introduced relative to concussion management are probably the most significant. You know, as a surgeon, I, I, I can touch one person at a time. And as I mentioned, I'll, we will never know how many, how many brains we saved from getting re-traumatized and damaged. Uh, but we know we've done about 20 million evaluations of athletes. So the, the numbers are, are very substantial. And Dr. Lovell, Mickey Collins, a whole team of individuals are, are part of that effort. And then I thank God every day, I'm still competing in triathlons. Uh, I won my age group here in Florida a month or two ago. I just don't tell people that I was the only one in my age group. But uh, <laughs> we won't tell anyone either. <laughs> But I did win, and uh, <laughs> and that, that's uh, it's been great. I've been very blessed. 
That's really amazing. My final question to you, Joe, is one we ask of all of our guests. For those who are interested in pursuing a career like yours, whether that's in medicine, in neurosurgery, into some of your athletic endeavors, what advice do you have for them? J.C. Penney, you remember the stores, the J.C. Penney stores? J.C. Penney was, uh, he built 2,000 department stores across the United States. Towards the end of his career, he was asked by a, a young individual much like yourself, uh, Mr. Penny, if you could summarize in one sentence what advice you would give to a young person starting out in business, uh, what would that be? And he thought for a minute and he said, when you fall, get up. Chuck Knoll, again, used to say football's not complicated. It's about blocking and tackling and whoever blocks and tackles the best will win the game. Life is not that complicated when you really boil it down. Joe, this has been great as an NFL fan, as a WWE fan. You've certainly given me a lot of insight into what happens combining my passions of sports and medicine. So Dr. Maroon, thank you for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Josh, it's been a great pleasure and I appreciate it. Thank you. I think Dr. Maroon provided some interesting insight into the ways that the NFL has continued to make the game of football as safe as it can be. I do still struggle trying to reconcile the excitement of watching a hard tackle with the knowledge that a few inches may be the difference between the player getting up quickly and having his life immediately changed. It is encouraging that the league has made changes, and as the public continues to voice their concerns, especially when led by former players, the NFL will be forced to continue to make the game safer. As Dr. Maroon alluded to, there is still so much that we do not know about concussions and the effects of CTE. Every time we see a former NFL athlete acting erratically or making a poor life choice, we question what the consequence of hundreds if not thousands of hits to the head had been. We certainly know a lot more about concussions now than we did 15 years ago, and as we continue to learn more, we'll be able to change the game to protect all athletes, from the NFL players you see on television every Sunday down to youth football players just starting out on the field. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode, so please reach out through our Instagram page. Maybe you have a child or another family member who plays football. I'd love to hear what your experience has been like and your comfort with what football looks like today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Take care.